Nice. Caledonians, yeah. Trying a different worship experience. Mike. There's more than one way to clean up messes. <laughs> no, you do not have to give back the chocolate. That's great. Thank you for sharing. Um, here's my story. Uh, it's not about my Easter egg challenge, but about the leftovers. This week, knowing that the Easter egg challenge season was ending, um, the, the, the basket of leftover eggs has been in my office, and I knew that there was chocolate in those eggs. <laughs> So I emptied them all and dumped them out over my desk, along with the, the challenges. And at one point, Liz, our administrative assistant, walked into my office, and there I am with all this chocolate. So I said, would you like some chocolate? And she said, if I take chocolate, do I have to take the challenge also? <laughs> <laughs> so I opened one up, and I said, here, you can have this one. I don't want this one. And I opened up another and said, I don't want that one either. And then Liz said, are there any in there that are sort of like, maintain the status quo? <laughs> it turns out there are no challenges, anything like that. Our scripture passages over these last six weeks have been stories of Jesus appearing to the disciples following his resurrection. We might call them post-resurrection conversations with Jesus. We started with the story of the walk to Emmaus. Remember on Easter evening at the end of that day, uh, two early followers of Jesus are walking along the road on their way to a town called Emmaus. And all of a sudden, Jesus meets them and begins to walk with them, except what? Do you remember? They don't recognize him. They're talking about Jesus and all the events of that day, and they're walking with Jesus, but they have no idea they're walking with Jesus until they sit down and enjoy a meal together and they recognize Jesus in, do you remember? The breaking of the bread. When he breaks the bread, it says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. During this series, we also heard the story of the, uh, the fishermen, the disciples who have returned to fishing and they've had a long and frustrating night of fishing because why? They caught nothing. All night long, fishing, fishing, and they caught nothing. And so the next morning, as the sun is rising, Jesus is there at the shoreline. And he's kind of a smarty pants. Because he says, hey, did you catch anything? And of course, they're like all defeated, right? And he says, just go out and try again and, and toss your net to the other side. And you can just imagine the grumbling, right? Like, what? Toss the net to the other side? 
And when they do that, why, why they said yes is, is another question, but when they do that, they catch so many fish they can barely pull them into the boat. And that story ends with Jesus and the disciples eating fish on the shoreline. Ophelia Hukini invited us to think about the story of Thomas, who gets kind of a bad reputation for doubting when really all he wanted was what everyone else had already had, right? A chance to see for themselves. And when Thomas sees for himself, he's convicted and he believes. Each of these stories that we've heard over these past six weeks, and the others as well, invite us in one way or another to embody the hope of Easter, to practice resurrection. Well, today is the final Sunday in the Easter season, and sometimes we call this Ascension Sunday. Does anybody know how many days, according to the Gospels, Jesus appeared to his disciples? Anybody know? It's one of those common biblical numbers. Forty. We read that for 40 days, off and on, he would appear to his disciples. And so on the 40th day, he ascended to heaven. The 40th day after Easter, we call the festival of the Ascension. And because it's the 40th day, it always falls on a Thursday. And we celebrate it the following Sunday. Now we find this story in two places. At the very end of the Gospel, according to Luke... And then at the very beginning of the book of Acts, and that's not a coincidence because most biblical scholars agree that the author of Luke and Acts was the same person. So the story of the Ascension is sort of a bridge between the, the two. Luke tells all the stories of Jesus' life from his birth to his baptism, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And Acts begins with the Ascension and tells the story of the early church. So today we're going to hear the story from the Gospel according to, uh, not the Gospel, or the, the book of Acts, which begins like this. The very first words in Acts addressed to Theophilus. Who is this Theophilus that the author is writing to? Well, we don't know for sure, but some biblical scholars believe that he was a, a benefactor of the authors. The name Theophilus literally means loved by God or friend of God. And so the author writes, Theophilus, the first scroll I wrote concerned everything Jesus did and taught from the beginning right up to the day when he was taken up into heaven. Before he was taken up, working in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus instructed the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed them that he was alive with many convincing proofs. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days speaking to them about God's kingdom. While they were eating, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. He said, this is what you heard from me. John baptized with water, but in only a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. As a result, those who had gathered together asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? which just proves to us that even until the last possible second, the disciples are asking the wrong questions. They're, they're famous for this, asking the wrong questions. And Jesus replies, It isn't for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set by God's own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now after Jesus said these things, as they were watching, he was lifted up. This is a Salvador Dali painting, by the way. I love this image. As they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took, them out of, took him out of their sight. While he was going away and as they were staring toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood next to them. They said, Galileans, why are you standing here looking toward heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Now here are a few um, artists' attempts at depicting this story. And I have to say, this is a strange story. This is a strange story. And I will admit, I have always struggled to know what to do with this story. And as a result, I have generally avoided it altogether. Now this is our 11th Easter season with the Hope Gateway community. And for most of these 11 Easter seasons, neither Sarah nor I have chosen to preach on the Ascension. And for most of them, Don Rudalevich has said, you know, the Ascension is kind of an important story. <laughs> so this year we decided that we would focus on the Ascension at the end of the Easter story. And it is an important story. It's just such a strange story. It's sort of like Jesus beam me up moment, right? Or Jesus being lifted into the clouds like some kind of helium balloon. We just don't, don't know what to make of it. So what I want to suggest is that maybe what we should do is just kind of set aside all the questions we have about this story and the mystery of it, right? I mean, we could tie ourselves up in knots trying to figure out the how did this ever happen kind of thing. Did Jesus really vanish into the clouds? Did God, like, literally pull him up to heaven as if heaven is somewhere up there? And if heaven is somewhere up there, is it, like, beyond the moon? Is it beyond this solar system? Is it beyond the Milky Way galaxy? Is it completely beyond our, our universe? Where is this place, heaven? Or is it possible that even 2,000 years ago, people didn't really fully understand what happened. Something happened that they uh, were challenged to try to put into words. Or that they understood the nuance of metaphor and that there was some spiritual truth here that, could, that really defied any logical explanation. Who knows? But since we can't know for certain, I want to suggest that we sort of set aside the mystery of it and instead focus on its implications. What, do we, what can we learn from this strange story. One thing we know for sure is that this is Jesus' final moments with his disciples. Jesus takes off his mantle and he turns it over to them. Having spent three years with these disciples, teaching them and modeling for them a different way of living that was centered in loving God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself, now Jesus takes his leave from them. He says farewell and he entrusts his ministry to their care. And before Jesus leaves, he gives them their final marching orders. 
He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is like Jesus' big mic drop, right? He drops the mic and then he's on his way. Some of you know my friend Steve Garnis Holmes, who's a United Methodist pastor at St. Matthew's United Methodist Church in Acton, Massachusetts. And he says, the ascension is when Jesus took off the training wheels and let go. I like that image. How many of you at one time or another have taught someone how to ride a bike, right? So there's that moment, right, when this kid has been riding with training wheels and they, began, they become very confident with those training wheels, right, because they can't tip too far to the right or to the left, but at some point you have to do what? You have to take off the training wheels, right? And so what happens when you take off the training wheels? What do you do? Well, what you do is you hold on to the bike, right? And you walk and you run as fast as you can, but at some point, what happens? You have to let go because they can ride faster than you can run along beside them and hold on. Sooner or later, you have to let go. And when you let go, what usually happens? They fall down, right? And when they fall down, you get a Band-Aid and you kiss it and you move on. That's part of learning to ride a bike. The ascension was kind of this moment for Jesus when he had to take off the training wheels and let go. Knowing that perhaps his disciples would fall and skin their knees and they would have to figure out how to bandage the wound and continue on their journey. Now, not surprisingly, the disciples are a little bit baffled. I do love this painting. I think it's an interesting image because... If you take the story literally, that is what the disciples would have seen, right? And there's the symbols of the Holy Spirit at the top, the dove, the female imagery. But the disciples are baffled. And the author of Acts tells us that they stand there for the longest time staring up at heaven. You and I would probably do the same. Like, what just happened? until suddenly two men in white robes appear. This reminds me of the, the story of the resurrection where two men in white robes appear, right, with a reassuring word. And they kind of give the disciples a kick in the pants. They say something like, yo, Galileans, why are you just standing there? Like, don't just stand there, do something. And they do from that moment forward. David Haley, who is a United Methodist pastor in the Chicago area, writes, once Jesus' disciples realized that, realized that he was not coming back, once they stopped looking into the sky and started looking at each other, no one would have guessed what would happen. They began to say things that sounded like Jesus and to do things that Jesus did. They became brave and capable and wise. Followers became leaders, listeners became preachers, the healed became healers, and disciples became apostles, witnesses of the risen Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing was ever the same again. Whenever two or three of them got together, it was as if he was with them, the strong abiding presence of the absent one, as available as bread and wine, as familiar as each other's faces. In other words, they got past that moment of just standing there thinking, now what do we do? 
and they actually began to live the life that Jesus had modeled for them over their time together. 2,000 years later, we stand in that same line. We are here today because those early disciples of Jesus received their marching orders from Jesus. They took up their mantle to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have continued to witness to God's love, generation after generation, seeking first God's kingdom, putting their faith into action. And we are called to do the same. It sort of like reminds me of a relay race. Like what happens in a relay race? Everybody has a part. Like you run for your course, right? Whether it's one lap or whatever it is. And then when you've gotten to the end of your lap, you do what? You pass the baton on to the next person. And they run their... And when we finish our course, what are we going to do? We're going to pass it on to the next person, right? For 2,000 years, generation after generation, it has worked that way. And we are called to do the same. Now, sadly, the world in which we find ourselves is a world not unlike the one that Jesus inhabited, a world with suffering and violence, a world of poverty and obscene wealth, a world of injustice. And it's into this world that we are called to embody the hope of Easter, to practice resurrection, to seek first the kingdom of God, to put our faith into action. Fifty years ago, there was a, name, a man named Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King who strove with his life to practice resurrection. One of the things he did near the near end of his life was to launch a movement that he called the Poor People's Campaign. He called for a coalition crossing all of the divides, racial divides and economic divides, all the divides that separate us, uniting in the fight to end poverty. He aimed to recruit over a million people to occupy the mall in Washington, D.C. African-Americans, Latino farmers, white Appalachian coal miners, and everyone else coming together, disparate communities, in the pursuit of economic justice. Some of you may remember that original Portuguese campaign. Sadly, Reverend Dr. King was assassinated before the movement really got traction. A historian and civil rights author, Vincent Harding, has written, Martin was one of those crazy members of the Christian community who really took Jesus seriously and believed that the way you get closest to the divine is by getting closer and closer to the most outcast members of the society. That's a hard path, but once you have chosen it, you know that there is no easy alternative. Well, today there is a new Poor People's Campaign that is beginning. Tomorrow, 50 years after Dr. King 
launched his movement. After months of planning, tomorrow, Maine will be one of more than 30 states and Washington, D.C., launching a new movement called the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. This is not a remembrance of something that happened 50 years ago. This is a picking up of the mantle and carrying it forward. And this movement is striving to unite tens of thousands of people across the country to challenge four interrelated evils. <coughs> Systemic poverty, racism, the war economy, or militarism, and ecological devastation. The first three of those, poverty, racism, and militarism, were the three evils that Dr. King identified. The fourth one, ecological devastation, is added this time because of the realities that we find ourselves in. Now this movement is being led nationally by these two people in the center, Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, who's co-director of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice, based at Union Seminary in New York City. And also on the right, uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber, who is known for his leadership of the Moral Mondays in North Carolina. Here's why the New Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is so important. Because there are fewer voting rights in 2018 than there were 50 years ago when the Civil Rights Act passed. Isn't that unbelievable? There are fewer voting rights acts, but voting rights today than there were 50 years ago. There are 140 million people in this country who are poor or low income. Guess what that number was 50 years ago when Dr. King launched the first public Do You think it was higher or lower? Lower. It was about 40 million. Today it's 140 million. We're going in the wrong direction. While the US economy has grown 18-fold in the past 50 years, Wealth inequality has expanded. The costs of living have increased, and social programs restructured and cut dramatically. It is harder to make a living today than it was 50 years ago. The minimum wage today goes significantly less far than it did 50 years ago. In fact, the minimum wage today is worth 27% less than it was worth just 20 years ago. There is no state in the country where you can earn minimum wage and afford an apartment for your family. In Maine, the statistics say that you have to work two full-time minimum wage jobs to afford an apartment. This is why the Poor People's Campaign is necessary. Currently, 53 cents of every federal discretionary dollar goes to military spending, and only 15 cents is spent on anti-poverty programs. We have a skewing of priorities here. We imprison and detain more people, especially poor people, than any country in the world. And I would add not just poor people, but also people of color. Look at the statistics. Those are just a few of the statistics to illustrate the incredible struggles that we find ourselves in that are at the, at the foundation of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. So I want to share a little video in which you'll see some of the leaders of the Poor People's Campaign talking about why this is so important. 
like the old mass meetings. We're here in all of our diversity. We're here in the human family. There is a fire raging now for the poor of this society. They are living in tragic conditions because of the terrible economic injustices that keep them locked in. We have to deal with our war economy and systemic racism and systemic poverty and ecological devastation. And finally, we have to deal with the moral narrative. We are traveling around this country building this Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. What we want to do now is hear a little bit from the local community who are a part of this campaign. I've spent five years, five or so more years homeless. Living on minimum wage has caused me to have to figure out on a daily basis how to afford basic necessities. While the U.S. sends trillions abroad, my friends, family, and fellow veterans suffer the economic consequences of the war economy. I have two children, and I enjoy raising them while acknowledging that being poor is a struggle of human rights. But when I lost my housing, health care, and income all at the same time, I was terrified, panicked. I want to stand here and reclaim the power and dignity of the mujeres in my life. I can't afford to pay a cap. It was one thing to know that you didn't have water and you couldn't afford your water. It's a whole nother to find out that they shut off your entire community and none of you matter. And in the aftermath of climate change, disasters, poor people are, and people of color are the ones to lose their homes. Who can't survive with 725? No parents should have in America should have to bury their parents for lack of medical Being poor is not a sin. Poverty is a sin. Being homeless is not a sin. Homelessness is a sin. And we are here, and it's time for us to be the remnant that can transform the nation. We are calling for a season of moral resistance, a season of organizing, a season of nonviolent, massive civil disobedience. There will be a movement that will break through the calm
including our own state house in Augusta, for rallies and for nonviolent moral direct action, all speaking with one voice to call for a new moral agenda for our nation, one that addresses poverty, racism, militarism, and our global climate crisis. Tomorrow kicks off 40 days of action, but the campaign will be a multi-year campaign. In the, world of, in the words of uh, Dr. Barber, nothing is going to change until we put a face on it, until we drive the public discourse, until we restart the moral narrative. I really believe that the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is one way of practicing resurrection. It's one way of being a witness to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It's a way of embodying the hope of Easter in a good Friday world. I'll leave you with these thoughts. Written by St. Teresa of Avila in the 16th century, she wrote, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ looks compassion into the world. Yours are the feet with which Christ walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which Christ blesses the world. May we be the hands and feet of Jesus in the